I'm so sorry to keep everyone waiting. It's very good of you to, to stay on. Uh, so, So I hope everyone's had a very good break um, and uh, it's very good to be back on our sessions, alhamdulillah. Um, so if everyone has the file open, that would be wonderful. Um, if a large number of people can't open it or something, then I could try to share it again. I don't know whether that was causing the problem or not, so it might be fine. But um, if anyone could say that they can't open it, um, then we can judge based on that. Uh, Sidinia says he sent it, that's wonderful. Okay, wonderful. So this is Plato's sophist. And I've called this unbecoming falsehood and being truth. Never shall it be proved that not, non, that not being is. And do thou keep thy thoughts from this way of inquiry. So what Plato has in mind here in the Sophist is the, the Heraclitean view and the Parmenidean view. Um, which are the kind of polar opposites of ancient ontologies. Um, so the Heraclitean view is that being is changing. It, it is nothing else but change. Um, and the Parmenidean monist view is that being is nothing but stability. Uh, there's no such thing as change. Um, even the apparent multiplicity of the world is is just an illusion. Um, whereas the former view, again, is that there is nothing but uh, multiplicity and change, and there's nothing stable. It's just this world of pure flux. But as Plato notes and, and makes the kind of backdrop to everything that he's saying, uh, for truth and falsehood to be possible, you, you need distinction. Um, but it can't be pure difference. So what he's setting out really is that there needs to be a middle way between uh, pure uh, difference and, and pure unity. Um, so the next slide, the basic correspondence formula. So what we find in the sophist um, is one of the first uh, written correspondence formulas. Um, Aristotle's ones are based on this. Of course, there's so much more to a so-called correspondence theory than just this little generic statement, of course. Um, but uh, it's stating that things that are, are not, this is 
falsehood and and that things that are not are and of course you just have to make the necessary adjustments there in order for um it to be about truth and then later on in the dialogue he says the true statement states about you the things that are as they are because he's talking about you the person that he's his uh, he's talking about uh, um, and certain statements that happen to be true about him. Whereas the false statement states about you things different from the things that are. And the word different there is a hint of his uh, solution, Plato's solution, but we'll go back to that. So here we have a difficulty stating that things that are are not and that things that are not are. Now, where is the difficulty here? Can anyone see a difficulty that Plato is trying to suggest? Stating that things that are are not and that things that are not are. While you're thinking about that, I'm going to very quickly run and get a glass of water because um, I'm thirsty. Trying to crack something that cannot be broken. So does anyone have any uh, idea about what the difficulty might be? So is the chat, is it the problem of crediting things that do not exist? Yes, exactly. Thank you, Siddhisa. Stating that things that are, are not, and that things that, things that are not are. So if they're things that are not, then how are they not? But how do you say anything of, next slide, that which is not there at all. So we have in the uh, dialogues, the stranger, he says, how a thing, which is Parmenides' son, how a thing can appear and seem and not be, or how a man can say a thing which is not true, has always been and still remains a very perplexing question. He who says that falsehood exists has the audacity to assert the being of not being, for this is implied in the possibility of falsehood. It shouldn't be thought the sophist is just about this silly game, which kind of seems obvious to most people. Actually, the simple answer to this question is really obvious. The, 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 the more profound answer is not obvious at all. And of course, that's the 
level that Plato is pitching on. Um, but, uh, but this is not just an investigation into the ground of how can falsehood be possible and how can illusion be possible and, and um, you know, how can false statements be possible and all that kind of thing. But it's also an investigation more fundamentally into how truth can be possible, um, as we'll see. But it's framed in this way. So, you know, it, the, the, the dialogue starts out trying to define who is the sophist. And the sophist is the person who makes a living making uh, plausible sounding arguments to people which are actually false. Um, and uh, so the question arises, um, how false discourse can be possible, given that if one is speaking about things which aren't real, which don't exist, which don't correspond to true states of affairs, and yet the discourse is intelligible, what's happening there? Um, now, the sophist, broadly speaking, as he is portrayed, would like to say that there's no issue here because there's no real distinction between truth and falsehood. And so he's not really doing anything immoral. Um, uh, he's just... Uh, constructing interesting arguments. Um, so stranger, there is no difficulty in seeing that the predicate not being is not applicable to any being. It is also plain that in speaking of something, we speak of a being, for to speak of an abstract something naked and isolated from all being is impossible. the impossibility of speaking about anything without applying unity and multiplicity to it. So this is what they go on to say. When we speak of things which are not, do we not endeavor to, to attribute plurality to non-being? Theotetus, certainly. Stranger. But on the other hand, when we say what is not, do we not attribute unity? Why? Because what is not. It's that specific thing that we're singling out that is not. So we're attributing unity to this non-existent thing. So this is problematic. Um, we're attributing plurality, which is an existent property. We're, we're attributing unity, which is an existent property. Theotetus in the Sophist is famously very agreeable, and it's not a very interesting dialogue from a dramatic perspective. There are many other dialogues that are, especially the earlier ones, but Plato in his later period gets is more interested in, in getting down to business. Um, also, Socrates is not there all of the time, um, which in a way might imply that he's moving beyond, Plato himself is moving beyond his master's teaching, not rejecting it, but perhaps going beyond the level that Socrates reached. But on the other hand, when we say what is not, do we not attribute unity manifestly? Nevertheless, we maintain that you may not and ought not to attribute being to not being. Most true. Do you see then that not being in itself can neither be spoken, uttered, or thought, but that it is unthinkable, unutterable, unspeakable, indescribable? 
Quite true. I who maintained that not being has no part either in the one or many, just now spoke and am still speaking of not being as one. But then a little while ago, I said that not being is unutterable, unspeakable, indescribable. When I introduced the word is, did I not contradict what I said before? And when I spoke of not being as indescribable and unspeakable and unutterable, and using each of these words in the singular, did I not refer to not being as one? And for Plato, and this is actually somewhere in the dialogue, I forgot to include it, but number, they, they say to each other, is you know, surely the most indisputably existent, existent thing. So for, for, for not being here to unmistakably partake in unity and multiplicity is very problematic. So the failure of facile solutions, what, what's a, a possible solution? Why might you say, well, this is just a waste of time, this discussion, because obviously um, when we're talking about things which don't exist, we're only applying you know, unity and multiplicity and saying is and all of this kind of stuff, not because those things exist, but just be, for, for another obvious reason. Can anyone, does anyone have a, an easy solution? If, if you didn't see those um, categories as having an existence, it as a, I mean, if you, yeah, if you didn't see them as having an independent existence, would it still be a problem? Well, I mean, that, that is a, a solution, um, but, it, but is it a coherent solution? I mean, if you're employing concepts objectively in the sense that you believe that they actually apply to reality, then, and they, they, they genuinely illuminate the intelligibility of the world, then that might work. If we were able to neatly separate off fictional items from other types of intelligible entity which don't exist in extramental particulars, then that might work, although even then it wouldn't, but it might seem to work. Um, and Siddhi Satchi absolutely said different types of being being existence, and that would be a kind of modern um, uh, solution, which also doesn't work. Sheikh, what exactly is not being here, Mamtani or Mardum or something else? Uh, well, actually, not being here is, is there's a deliberate ambiguity, and Plato is a complete genius. You can't, I mean, the more you look into this stuff, you read this dialogue, there's so many layers of what he's doing there because it's not just this linear uh, philosophical tract. It's put into a conversation where there's someone of, of, of less understanding, there's someone working through ideas, they make mistakes and so on. And so you have to really read everything. But, but it's between two things, which is uh, hovering in the background is the idea of, well, it's al-ma'adum al-mahd. Of course, in the Islamic tradition, we have the distinction between al-ma'adum al-mahd, which is the completely non-existent thing, and al-ma'adum al-thabit, which is the non-existent thing in the sense that it doesn't exist in extramental particulars, but it's still distinct. 
So al-ma'dum al-thabit is different to al-ma'dum al-mahd. Al-ma'dum al-mahd is unutterable, unthinkable. It's just pure non-existence. And, and all we can do is designate it with that term, but it doesn't refer to anything. Um, but uh, what, what ends up coming out and, 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 and what Plato ends up showing is that what we really mean by al-ma'dum, by the, the, the not being, the not existent thing is, uh, uh, well, I won't tell you exactly what we mean because that would be give too much away, but it's al-ma'dum al-thabit. So uh, it's, it's that which is distinct in itself um, I don't want to say, but does not exist in extramental particulars, because Plato's whole point and his whole ontology is that it's not an extramental particular ontology. Extramental particulars do not enjoy more existence than other types of things. Contra Aristotle, and Aristotle, don't forget, was Plato's student in the academy for 20 years, and he was in a group, he was probably the ringleader, of people who were skeptical, skeptical about um, uh, Plato's eidetic philosophy and, and leaned more towards a type of immanentism. Um, but uh, anyway, well, let's, let's move on. But yes, it's al-Marduma Thabit. So the failure of facile solutions. Why cannot we say speaking about non-being or things which do not exist simply means we are judged that a distinct mental entity that does not exist in extramental particulars, say Phoenix, does not exist in particulars. And this is, uh, this is the kind of solution that the average mutakallim of today, no offense to anyone, uh, or the average, um, well, anyone interested in philosophy will, will probably say this, that yes, when we, they'll wisely and sagely explain that uh, when we talk about things which non-being, we're simply referring to our mental uh, representation, we're, we're, we're referring or, or, or inventions. Um, you know, there's al-artibadi al-haqiqi and there's al-artibadi al-ikhtirari in our tradition. So I come up with some idea about a character like Gandalf, for example, and then I say, Gandalf, uh, was one of the Istari. Gandalf um, was on the White Council. Gandalf with Radagast and Saruman was uh, a wizard. Um, Gandalf helped Fred. I'm saying all these things about Gandalf. How's it possible he's not there? Well, it's just because he's a mental entity. He doesn't exist in extramental particulars. Right? Why cannot we say speaking about non-being or things that don't exist simply means we're judged that a distinct mental entity that does not exist in extramental particulars. So I, there's no sign of Gandalf in extramental particulars, but he exists in a mental world, which was created by J.R.R. Tolkien. And, you know, there's all sorts of true things that can be said about him, but he exists in that domain of, of uh, mental existence. Why? Because this presumes a naive view of the existent, which precludes the framework for the world's intelligibility, which also does not exist in particulars, but is rather presupposed by particulars. So 
to explain that more, the things which are existent things cannot be known without the common concepts, which in, in uh, Plato come under the rubric of the common concepts, the, you know, related to the Greek word koine, which means common. The senses do not cognize common concepts. So in Theotetus 185b, we find Socrates saying, now when it comes to a sound or a color, sorry, just one. It's still quite cold, isn't it? Even though the heat's on. Um, now when it comes to a sound or a color, first of all, don't you have this very thought about both of them, that both of them are, and, and what do you use to hear a sound? You use your particular sensible capacity and the same with color, a different capacity. Then you have this very thought about both of them, that both of them are, I do, Socrates, and that each of them is different from the other and the same as itself, of course. And that both together are two and each is one, that two. Are you also able to consider whether they are unlike or like one another? Probably. Through what then do you think all these things about them? Given that it's not possible to grasp what is common to them either through hearing or through sight. And through what does this other capacity operate? The one that indicates to you what is common, both in every context and in this particular one, namely what you label with is and is not. And the other aspects of things we were asking about just now in relation to our examples. What will you assign for all these aspects as the instruments through which what does the perceiving in us perceives each of them? You're talking about being and non-being, likeness and unlikeness, same and different, also things being one or having some number. You're clearly asking about even and odd two and everything that goes along with these. You want to know through which of the parts of the body we, can, we could possibly perceive all these things. You're following extraordinarily well, Theotetus. That's exactly what my question is. I certainly couldn't answer the question, Socrates, except by saying that I don't think there's any such thing in the first place. There's no special instrument in these cases as there is in the others. Rather, the mind appears to me to investigate the common aspects in relation to everything by and through itself. Why you are a beauty, Theotetus, not ugly, as Theodorus said. You've done me a favor by having saved me a great long discussion if it already appears to you that the mind investigates some things by and through itself, others through the capacities the body has. This was what I was thinking myself, and I wanted you to be thinking it too. It is indeed already apparent to me. So to which of the two sets of things do you assign being? This is what is most constantly present in all cases. I myself counted among the things that the soul reaches out to itself by itself. The like too and the unlike, the same and the different. Yes, what about beautiful and ugly, good and bad? These two, it seems to me, are more than anything things whose being the soul examines in relation to one another. Therefore, the senses do not distinguish between truth and falsehood because truth and falsehood, the, the sensible object, is not in itself either true or false. Being true or false is a function of judgment and that 
is something which is only possible if the world is intelligible. And the world can only be intelligible if there are these common concepts, relational concepts um, that render everything distinct and render everything relatable and make the world intelligible. It's not the sensible objects, the sense data in itself. So Plato is arguing against a naive conception of being that identifies being with the sensible particular world. If everything distinct is, then how do we distinguish between true and falsehood? Uh, that kind of, I'm not sure how that slide got there. Anyway, the battle between the gods and giants. So this is a very important section of the sophist, a very famous section. And so he tells a story about the gods and the giants. So stranger, there appears to be a sort of war of giants and gods going on amongst them, the, the thinkers. They are fighting with one another about the nature of reality. There's a very, very famous passage, as you know. Some of them are dragging down all things from heaven and from the unseen to earth. And they literally grasp in their hands rocks and oaks of all such things they lay hold and obstinately maintain that only the things which can be touched or handled, touched or handled, have being, because they define being and body as one. And if anyone else says that what is not a body exists, they altogether despise him and will hear of no other view. And this brings to mind a very important point, which uh, certain friends have brought my attention to uh, particularly recently, which is that there really is nothing you can find in, in modern, in Heraf, in modern thought, which did not exist thousands of years ago. And the reason for that is simply that this is human nature. The human being really is a composite of different faculties and we really do have a natural amount of and we really do have a physical dimension it really does identify it can identify solely with its physical dimension if it does so there are all sorts of um motivations for one coming to think that there is nothing but that physical dimension that's always been there modern varieties of skepticism have always been there um atomism which is really very similar in important ways to modern atomism has always been there um and uh you know utilitarian ethics has always been there um you know hedonistic ethics has always been there anyway so you know these the giants maintain that only the things which can be touched or handled have being because they define being and body as one. I have often met with such men and terrible fellows they are. And that is the reason why their opponents cautiously defend themselves from, from above out of an unseen world, mightily contending that true essence, true being consists of certain intelligible and incorporeal ideas. The bodies of the materialists, which by them are maintained to be the very truth, they break up into little bits by their arguments and affirm them to be not essence or being. Uh, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, the one who translated this. 
um, very famous guy from Balliol. I remember his name. Oh yeah, Benjamin Jowett uh, said essence in his original translation, and then it was um, corrected by his editors uh, 50 years later at Balliol to reality. Uh, no, not reality, to, um, yeah, reality most of the time, um, sometimes to being. But in any case, we don't need to get into that. Not essence, but generation and motion. So, uh, Plato distinguishes between being and becoming, as we said last time. Uh, being, which is genesis, is um, this world of, of flux, and, and being, which is usia or to'on, um, uh, is um, the world of the forms. So between the two armies, Theotetus, there is always an endless conflict raging concerning these matters. Let us ask each party in turn to give an account of that which they call reality. Let us ask each party in turn to give an account of that, which is what I just said. How shall we get it out of them? With those who make being to consist in ideas, there will be less difficulty, for they are civil people enough, but there will be very great difficulty, or rather an absolute impossibility, in getting an opinion out of those who drag everything down to matter, al-kafara. If they will admit that any, even the smallest particle of being is incorporeal, it is enough. They must then say, what that nature is which is common to both the corporeal and incorporeal and which they have in their mind's eye when they say of both of them that they are. Perhaps they may be in a difficulty and if this is the case, there is a possibility that they may accept a notion of ours respecting the nature of being, having nothing of their own to offer. Of course, I've, uh, anyone who's read the sophist knows I've missed out a big chunk of it uh, on numerous occasions because I gave up on the idea of uh, presenting everything, and we can't go on with the sophists forever. Um, so, but in any case, I hope the way I've presented it will make sense in the end. What is the notion? Tell me, and we shall soon see. My notion would be that anything which possesses a sort of power to affect another, or to be affected by another, if only for a single moment, however trifling the cause and however slight the effect, has real existence, and I hold the de definition of being is simply power. That's not Plato's real definition, but it has aspects of what he really thinks. Again, it's very important to realize that with Plato's always, you have to read to the end and um, read other texts and understand the purpose of what he's saying at that particular moment. Let us now go to the friends of ideas. Of their opinions too, you shall be the interpreter. I will. To them we say, you would distinguish being from generation? Yes, they reply. And you would allow that we have contact with generation by the body and through perception, but we participate with true reality through thought and by the soul. And such reality you would affirm to be always the same and immutable, whereas generation or becoming varies. Yes, that is what we should affirm. They deny the truth of what we were just now, saying to the earthborn giants about existence, what was that? Any power of doing or suffering in a degree, however slight, was held by us to be a sufficient definition of being. True. They deny this and say that the power of doing or suffering is confined to becoming and that neither power is applicable to being. 
and that neither power is applicable to being. And is there not some truth in what they say? Yes, but our reply will be that we want to ascertain from them more distinctly whether they further admit that the soul knows and that being or essence is known. There can be no doubt that they say so. And is knowing and being knowing, doing, being known, doing or suffering or both? Or is the one doing and the other suffering? Or has neither any share in either? Clearly, neither has any share in either, for if they say anything else, they will contradict themselves. I understand, but they will allow that if to know is active, then of course to be known is passive. On, the, on this view, being, insofar as it is known, is acted upon by knowledge and is therefore in motion. For that which is in a state of rest cannot be acted upon as we affirm. True. So, this is often seen by uh, exegetes of Plato to be a turning point in his own doctrine of the forms because he, he criticizes here what the friends of the forms are saying. Um, but I think the more nuanced interpreters, well, for one thing, they note that later on in the Timaeus, um, he actually goes back to the same doctrine of the forms and it doesn't seem to have changed at all. I think that he is just bringing out a hidden dimension, which is always there, which is the idea that the world of forms is not this inert, timeless kind of, um, uh, lifeless realm, um, this very austere realm, but is actually imbued with life um, and is imbued with motion, a kind of spiritual motion. And that motion one might construe as the very intelligibility of the world. It is, as it were, the intelligible realm reaching out with its life to offer the possibility of its being known. Um, so um, uh, the, 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 the very possibility of intelligibility is only possible if, if uh, being, as in the world of the forms, possesses a sort of life um, that allows it to be uh, uh, knowable in potentia uh, and also then to be the object of knowledge and that also affects the object of knowledge. Um, being itself is the living principle of determinateness. The rest of the supreme generates entailments and one of its entailments is difference. Motion overflows into becoming. So what on earth is that talking about? The principle of not being is none other than a fundamental property of being. Plato is saying, ultimately in the sophist, that not being has being. It's a type of being. It's a branch of being. It possesses being. It's a subset of being. The intelligibility of the world is a kind of life and motion by which it is capable of causing knowledge and of being known, has that relationship with the knowers. So here we have the realm of real being and the realm of real, of mere becoming. So Plotinus in 6, 1 to 3 of the Aeneads, which one might, I mean, it's the most difficult section of the Aeneid, it's about a hundred pages. Um, 
It's the most overlooked part of the Aeneid. Many people would say it's the most important part of the Aeneid, and yet it's possible to write a introductory text on Plotinus without mentioning it at all. Um, but what Plotinus does, the standard account of what he does there is that in 6.1-3 of the Aeneads, he provides a critique of the Aristotelian categories. So Plotinus, unlike Aristotle, uh, unlike Plato, is a, is a post-Aristotelian philosopher. But he considers himself to be a fully and completely faithful Platonist, and he considers himself not to be coming with anything original, but simply to be uh, a commentator. And, um, and some people view him as the last anti-Aristotelian Neoplatonist. He's also the founder of Neoplatonism. Um, uh, no, no, actually, they say he's the last anti-Aristotelian Platonist, because what they mean is there's all sorts of people before him, like Alcinous and Numenius and, and other um, earlier Platonists, who many of them are uh, very anti-Aristotelian. And then later on, the idea is that with people like Simplicius and uh, Damascus and others, um, you have this very uh, this rage for harmonization of Plato and Aristotle. And it's important for our purposes as Muslims um, who revere uh, the Islamic philosophical tradition, um, this notion of harmonization, because it is a very, very big thing in our tradition as well. Um, and what, what Ibn Sina is doing is really a harmonization of Plato and Aristotle. Um, even when it's unbeknownst to them. I mean, I, I, Ibn Sina doesn't really see himself as doing it, but that is what he's doing. Uh, Al-Farabi sees himself as doing that. But why is it that they think that they are doing that? And they, and, and they actually, it's a much easier operation for them, even than the later Neoplatonists, earlier than them, but the later Neoplatonists. It's because um, the, as is well known, the... Uh, that uh, they were very unclear about what Aristotle was really about because they had received very important portions of the Aeneads in the form of the theology of Aristotle. And they thought that it was written by Aristotle. Um, in most cases, they thought that. And uh, although some of them started to doubt at, at various points. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that's actually... Uh, portions of the Aeneads of Plotinus. And so they thought Aristotle was much more Pla Platonist leaning than he really was, even when it came to things like the forms and so on. Um, and so the harmonization was a good deal easier than it would be if they were just looking at the metaphysics. And they also noticed Aristotle seems to contradict himself, but they thought, well, the theology of Aristotle is just his higher level of discourse for initiates. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, the other, there are many texts, but the, the two main ones with theology of Ar in the transmission of Neoplatonism, as I've said many times, were the theology of Aristotle and portions also of the elements of theology of uh, Proclus, which was translated as Kitab al-Idah fil khayr al-Mahd. And so that also came down to them, and they also thought it was by Aristotle. Although some, some Islamic thinkers did think it was by Proclus, interestingly. 
Um, but the majority of people thought that, that was by Aristotle. And so there wasn't this very clear distinction made between the Platonic and Aristotelian traditions. Uh, but they did have Aristotle's critique of Plato. And so there was a bit of an anti-Platonic bent to a lot of it. There wasn't a very, and again, the, the very sophisticated stuff that they got from the Platonic tradition they thought was by Aristotle. So, um, so yeah, what I'm saying is you really have to wait for the, uh, uh, the Akbarians to get real anti-Aristotelians again in our tradition, which is very interesting. However, as I said that on the group, it's not really true that Plotinus is the last anti-Aristotelian Platonist. Uh, Proclus and um, Syrianus uh, can also be very, they're very, they don't pull any punches when it comes to clear errors that Aristotle's made. And the rest of the time, they might be inclined to harmonization, as indeed one should be if, if some, someone's saying something true. Um, even if you hate their guts, you have to uh, accept that uh, it's true what they're saying, because uh, it's, it's uh, you know, you know the truth by the truth, not by its men. But um, I'm not saying that we should hate Aristotle in any way. He's, he's actually a, a great thinker a very interesting thinker, a very helpful thinker. Um, and, uh, but I think he does have these very, very um, major limitations and whether or not he had some sort of hidden doctrine or we, we, we lost to his works where he's perfectly sound on everything. I mean, it's really much of a muchness because we don't have them. And, and what we do have is his metaphysics where he makes a lot of horrendous errors um, in his exposition of Platonic doctrine. And uh, it's a pretty miserable read, actually, a lot of the time. Although, but there's a lot of great things in there as well. And it's very, a lot of very important and, and necessary. Um, I mean, it's a necessary part of one's philosophical education. Uh, but it can go very wrong. His ethics can go very wrong, and his metaphysics can go very wrong, very, very easily. But what does what does Plotinus do in 6.1-3? He provides a critique of the Aristotelian categories. And he, and what is the critique about? It's about their claim to be talking about real being. So he's saying the Aristotelian categories of substance, um, uh, quantity, quality, uh, relation, place, time, position, possession, uh, action and affection cannot actually apply to real being. They don't describe real being. They're a lower level than real being. And in fact, they don't even, they're not even proper categories of the uh, sensible world. <laughs> Um, they're, they're, they're just uh, classificatory apparatuses. Um, they don't really uh, answer to any form of, any real categories of being. And he shows this in an extraordinary way, um, showing that some of them are, but I mean, quality, quantity, motion, relation, uh, not motion, because that's not an Aristotle, but relation, um, and so-called substance, logomene usia, 
so-called substance, as he keeps on, he relentlessly taunts Aristotle by saying this throughout 6, 1 to 3. Um, but so-called substance, quality, quantity, motion and relation, he considers to be real categories of the realm of mere becoming. Um, but the other ones he doesn't, and he shows that by showing that they are not truly primary. Um, and so if something is reducible or expandable to something which is causally prior, then it can't really be a category of being. So he shows that. And then he takes in, so that's in 6.1. In 6.2, six, in 6.1, six, he kind of sets out the problem. 6.2 and 6.3, he goes into more detail about what's wrong with uh, Plato's, uh, Aristotle's understanding. And then he, he puts forward his own vision of the categories of the realm of mere becoming. Um, and then in 6.2, he puts forward his categories of the intelligible realm. And these are the real categories of intelligible being. This is why it's possible to have true discourse. This is why it's possible to have true intelligibility. And these are the meta principles. They are the uh, superordinate principles of all of the common concepts. So all of the Umur Amma, uh, which we saw in uh, Thingybob Theotetus earlier, uh, these are the superordinate principles which govern even them. So the most primary, but they're still beneath the level of the one. Um, so the realm of being in Plato, being is identified with the world of forms uh, and and the world of intellect as such. Uh, and so being and intellect are convertible. And being contains uh, implicitly these other concepts, which are motion, stability, or other haqaiq, which are motion, stability, difference, and identity. Um, and so, this is what Plato introduces, and modern scholars tend to think, gosh, why on earth is he introducing these very random collection of, of uh, five kinds in the middle of the sophist when he's just uh, talking about how to account for false proposition, which is, you know, great interest to the modern logician who just you know, wants to um, keep things trivial and technical. Um, but uh actually plato is never doing that he's always talking about ontology and he's always talking about Haqaiq. so why does he introduce the five greatest kinds the magistagene he introduces them because he's telling you what being is um what's the closest we can come to understanding what being is well it has motion kinesis it has stasis stability it has which is eternal being as you can see underneath there it has difference, heterotes, and it has identity, tauton. Um, so when we experience stability in the world of becoming, because I'm, you know, uh, which I can never say very convincingly, unfortunately. Um, I just copy Kareem, who does say it convincingly. But uh, when I have stability like me, for example, because I'm just me, I'm not someone else. Uh, that's not because of any property intrinsic to the world of becoming. It's because I'm participating in the world of 
stability, the wealth of the intelligible realm. It's overflowing. That's why I say in the book that the world of extramental particulars is inside Nafs al-Amr. It's informed by the intelligible principles of Nafs al-Amr. But it's not, and it's a, it's a part of Nafs al-Amr, but it, it's not exhaustive of Nafs al-Amr. Um, so the intelligible realm pervades the sensible realm, and that's why the sensible realm is in, intelligible in the other sense, which is objectively noble. So, um, so it also has motion and life uh, and uh, uh, it has stability, so it stays the same. It, is, it has a, an, an identity over not time, but eternity um, and uh, of being the, uh, the same kind of thing. Um, and it has uh, identity in a different sense uh, that it is in the sense of the principle of identity that um, is not other than itself. And it has, and that is a relational concept, uh, unlike stability, which is the source of, of that uh, identity. And then difference, um, which is its distinctness from other things. And then being, very interestingly, all of these properties describe being, but then being itself is also a property off on its own. Why? Because you say motion has being, stability has being, difference has being, identity has being. It's not possible to, to but motion is not stability. Stability is not difference. So it's not possible to identify them strictly with being. So being itself has a... Uh, real meaning. So going back a few slides, being itself is the living principle of determinateness. Now, all of those things are determinate. St substance is determinate. Sorry, not substance, that is being. Motion is determinate. Stability is determinate. Difference. All of those things are determinate. So being informs all of them. It's the principle of determinateness. But that principle of determinateness itself is not itself motional stability or difference identity. So going back to the beginning again, to the basic correspondence formula, stating that things that are are not, and that things that are not are, or if you want to say it in sense of truth, stating that things that are are, and that things that are not are not. So how does Plato then account for the possibility of false proposition? Well, he says the principle of uh, uh, non-being is really the principle, and then it becomes very Akbarian, is really just ta'ayun itself. Just the fact of being muta'ayun makes you not really exist because you lose the fullness of being. You know, uh, motion is other than being itself. Stability is other than being itself. Difference is other than being itself. Identity is other than being itself. Um, but they are all being. So there's something kind of paradox, paradoxical about that, that non-being in some sense inheres in the intelligible world because it's just being other than pure being. Um, and in a more parochial context, 
um, being uh, non-being is simply not being whatever it is which is known. So I'm non-being if what I mean is as if. And as if is non-being if what we mean is Samil. And Samil is non-being if what we mean is Yusuf. And um, so it is other than what is known because beings are whatever is distinct and determinate. So we don't have this silly ontology of extra mental, particular, sensible, real uh, things. And then uh, everything else is um, not real and not being. Rather, everything that exists is distinct. Uh, everything which is distinct and determinate exists. But then you have higher modes of existence and lower modes of existence. You have principles of unity, which uh, are higher. So that the thing concerned is higher. Human being is higher than just body, for example, because human being has intellect as its principle of unity. And intellect is higher than body. Um, and so you have a different way of sorting through existent things than that which uh, has this bias towards the extramental particular. Um, but 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 non-being simply becomes difference. Whenever something is determinate, in a way it has being, and another way it's non-being because it will because it's determinate. I'm now limited. I'm now non-being compared to all of the rest of being. I'm non-being. I think it's wonderful. It's a brilliant way of doing it, uh, which no one would ever expect unless you actually read the sophist. So. Um, this is Plato's basic account uh, of, 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 of not being. And what it means is there's no real thing, such thing as non-being, everything exists. But everything has a different ontological level. So what is the ultimate ground, going back to the realm of real, the golden and black realm of real being, realm of mere becoming slide, it's heterotes, difference, which is the principle of non-being, which makes it possible to have such a thing, um, that, that ma makes the possibility of, of false uh, 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 discourse uh, about false propositions to be possible. And, and the example given, one of the examples given at the end of the sophist is uh, the stranger is speaking to Theotetus and he sees that Theotetus is sitting and he says, well, how do I account for the proposition Theotetus is flying? It's a false proposition. Well, it's because Theotetus is flying. It's not because it's in, you know, languishing in this swamp of non-being, but, you know, flying exists, Theotetus exists, but when you combine these together, um, it, it, it is other than everything we know about Theotetus, who's actually sitting, he never flies. And so it's other than this state of affairs that I'm comparing it to. And that's why there's a, a long discussion in the sophist also about the uh, kinds which can mix with each other and the kinds which cannot, because there are some things which exclude one another 
in, in this case, it's kinesis and stasis that exclude one another. But then, of course, uh, the conclusion that is reached ultimately is that in the intelligible realm, they can all come together. Uh, and it's in the realm of becoming that they exclude each other. Um, but uh, in any case, that concludes my uh, my presentation about the sophist. Uh, and this was all in aid of explaining just the, the very brief reference and fleeting reference to the correspondence formula, which you find in Aristotle, which has its basis in Plato, stating of things which are that they are and things that are not that they're not. But look how much there was in saying about things that are not, things that are not, aren't, that, that they are not. There's a lot going on there in the sophist. Um, but in, next time we'll resume, uh, we'll go on with the structure of the book and uh, and pretty soon we'll run into Kant who I think is we'll spend quite some time on Kant but we'll focus on the what's there in the book because I've gone into that in some detail I think it would be really very good if we could nail Kant because Kant is a tricky character um, but he's actually quite easy to nail once you find his Achilles heel and then when you get him you, the whole of modernity just crumbles in front of your eyes. Um, it's amazing, it really is. Uh, it's so many different dimensions, so it's really worth doing. But in any case, thank you very much. Uh, we can move to discussing anything. I'm so sorry about starting late. I think we've got about 15 minutes because I think we should... Um, probably finish at the same time um but we'll see um you do you mind coming up and just speaking next to the microphone sure um so i had a question which um i mean i was, I was a little troubled even when reading the text about um, why is um, this passage on, it's on page 30 of the PDF, um, um, so the stranger says, I understand, but they will allow that if to know is active, then of course to be known as passive. Uh, and on this view being, insofar as it is known is acted upon by knowledge uh, and is therefore in motion for that, which is in a state of rest cannot be acted upon. So, so why is it? Um, you had to ask about that, yeah. So, so, so to be, why is it? Uh, does it affect being to, to be known? Why does being known affect uh, one's being? Well, because it's being known. Mm. Isn't that being affected? I mean, I'm struggling with it. It's being known. So it's being affected. Isn't that affection? Is being, being something? Something happening to you? It is happening to it. And so it is being known. But um, yeah, it's pretty troubling. Uh, it's a bit of a difficult section. Uh, what you find with um, Plato is that he is endlessly wrangled over by commentators. Most of the modern ones want to very quickly say, oh, that doesn't make any sense um, because they're so clever. Um, you know, very good people to look at are the Neoplatonists because they take Plato very seriously. 
they know that he, that his philosophy, not in the in the in a wooden sense and in, in a in an acceptable sense, is a system ultimately. Um, and so, you know, you have to look further afield in his philosophy to understand how does Plotinus understand the motion of the forms. He doesn't understand it, um, and this will illuminate what this really means. He doesn't understand it as uh, the, 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 you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, you know, the forms have motion because we're knowing them and that's affecting them. That doesn't make sense. That's true. Uh, but no, it's because the forms are thinking themselves that they're affected. That's why, because the, the realm of intellect is thinking the forms. And so they are not only uh, uh, principles of intelligibility that can be known, but they're actively thinking themselves as well. That's why they're in motion, right? If you're thinking about yourself, isn't there a kind of motion, a kind of life there? Uh, uh, it's active and it's a reciprocal and kind of... Uh, yeah, there's a um, dynamic process happening there, which is there's an object of knowledge and then there's you knowing it at the same time. Um, yeah. Would you be fair to say that we are saying that the object is then altered by that? Well, that that is what the object is. You know, it being altered, you know, uh, implies there's this kind of temporal process which isn't there. That's what it really is. It's in motion. It has, it possesses life. What Plato is trying to say is one mustn't think. Of course, the modern people all think, all, all say that, I mean, not, not, all, not the good ones, but, you know, the ones who are in, inclined to analytic philosophy and things like that will say, um, uh, you know, this is Plato realizing that his theory of the forms is not really tenable. Did Plato then leave the theory of the forms here because he criticized it once here? And also in the, you know, Parmenides, he brings up third man argument. <laughs> but of course, he's not uh, leaving the doctor of the forms because he comes straight back to it in an even later dialogue, which uh, the Timaeus. And anyway, it would be absurd for, him, for him to leave the doctrine. What he's correcting is a possible misinterpretation, which is to think of the forms as this dead world of stuff which somehow has less life than the realm which comes after it, which is the realm of soul. And of course, you know, Jane Findlay has beautifully shown how the three hypostases really are in Plato, they're not a Neoplatonic invention of the one intellect and soul. But but no, the realm of intellect has life. Um, I wouldn't say they're in change, Sachi, because they are. They have to have a stability and an eternality. But um, it's a principle of motion, uh, and it's a principle of of life, uh, and the principle also of the the potential to cause change in a different realm. That's what I'd say. Unless you have a better interpretation, which you often do, but. Um, uh, yeah, I don't think the forms are always becoming, but they're always in motion. They're always a principle of life. 
that uh, has that that has the potential to cause the world of becoming, and is actually causing the world of becoming, um, and is actively uh, they, they actively uh, the the world of forms actively knows itself, um, and so it's a world of life and uh, and 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 and. Uh, uh, knowledge of itself. Um, so, yes. Anyone else have anything, or want to talk about something else, preferably? Can I can I ask a question? I was trying to figure out how to raise my hand, but who's this? Isa. Oh, Isa. Um. So, so uh, you very uh, nicely explained what, how uh, something, um, a false proposition can have, can have a kind of being with the Thetatus can fly example. So the, yeah. dif the different constituent parts, they yeah. all have a kind of, you know, they, they uh, have a being, but when you put them together, it's, it's something um, false but mm. uh, how would that apply to say a um, some mythical creature some you know affirming something uh, let's say which you know a mermaid or a phoenix along the same line of of, of reasoning yeah well you know that they, they are if you want to say that they have they don't exist I mean, you could just say they exist but if you want to say that they don't exist then you can say that they are other than uh, what is known um, to exist. Um, uh, if your reference, I mean, it depends how you're defining your existence here. If your reference point is extramental particulars, which is what we usually mean when we say that such and such doesn't exist. If you're not a philosopher, um, there's lucky souls uh, who aren't philosophers. They just say such and such doesn't exist. Gandalf doesn't exist because he um, it can't be encountered in extramental particulars. Therefore, he's other than everything that we know about extramental particulars. So that would be one way of, of dealing with it on that understanding. Now, it's important to understand that in our tradition, Sidq al-Qadiyya the truth of a proposition entails and necessitates the existence of the subject. Maldor, subject predicate, the subject. So um, now, if you have uh, a an extramental particular ontology, when you say Wajudul Maldor, you're in big trouble because you can't really say anything um, uh, except something that involves, you know, bodies and and colours and stuff, which is not going to get you very far. Certainly not in, you know. If that would you allow or something, uh, so uh, you, so Sitkul Khadiya uh, requires the wujud of the Maldora. So, um, so what the later thinkers, the Mahatakun, say is that the wujud here means wujud of in Nafsul Amr, doesn't mean extra mental particular existence. Whereas the standard construal of wujud. Uh, al mawjud is the extra mental particulars because al wujud yataqaf al ta'yun. So, um, in, in the Abbasid and late Kalam view, unless people are 
very enlightened and, and have been influenced by Aquarianism or something. Um, so uh, uh, that's, you know, this, this doctrine of Plato's feeds in quite nicely to, to the doctrine of Nafsul Amr. Um, and uh, Galambo, he says, Kullama Natasawarahu Natasawarahu Fellahu Wujudan Finafsil Amar or Thawut Finafsil Amar, I can't remember. Um, I wanted to dig out that quote it's from one of his recitals. Uh, you know, and he said that includes, you know, Baharman Zitabak. Um, uh, you know, the fangs of a ghoul and all sorts of fictional objects. But the fictional objects are not really the important ones. Those are, you know, the ones which are important are the which are the apparatuses of the intelligible world, the, the, what you might call the common notions. Molana Niaz, you had a, a discussion point. Yes. Uh, but, uh, oh, how nice to see I'm, you. I'm not a Molana for sure. Um, there, I have a lot, lot of interesting We're all Molanas questions. here, maybe. <laughs> At least one. Can uh, be whatever you want um, to be. <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my, my question about this you know, I don't know if you've addressed it in the book. Uh, perhaps I've uh, lost track of it, where you mentioned in the book. You know, this is a very different vision of reality, and it seems to be rather prominent within the ancient world. Um, this more Platonic, um, you know, uh, Neoplatonist kind of a world that seems a lot more Platonic than it does Aristotelian. Mm. Uh, where... Or at what point uh, do you, would you say is there a heavy movement towards a much more uh, extramental particulars based understanding of reality? When or roughly at what point in the Western tradition does that happen? Oh, um, in the Western tradition, uh, when does that happen? Um, well, it definitely doesn't happen with Augustine, because Augustine follows Plotinus very closely. Um, and he's rather a brilliant thinker. I mean, I was brought up, <coughs> think that Augustine was very bad because of his doctrines, original sin, and things like that. But, but then, uh, and you know, the, the punishment of infants and things. Um, but uh, you know, in in in, uh, in um, the Barzakh. But uh, but actually, he's an absolutely brilliant thinker, and he's an amazing thinker. He's not a very systematic thinker. Um, his trinitarian thought, I find very unappealing. But uh, in terms of his doctrine of divine illumination. Um, and his understanding of a lot of different, uh, I mean, his understanding of time is wonderful. But the thing is, he follows Plotinus very, very closely. Um, right. uh, and it's, it's important because he is very, very influential on the subsequent trajectory of Western thought. 
Um, you then have, um, you know, the next major thinker in standard historiographies of, of philosophy is not Boethius because he's not major enough. It's probably because he's not original enough. It's really John Scottish Erigena um, and his very, his huge dialogue on, on, uh, on nature. Um, and he knew Greek, which was unusual at the time. Um, and he's a really amazing and interesting Neoplatonist philosopher, well, Platonist philosopher. Um, and, well, I mean, you know, while the, in, the influence of Augustine was still very strong, while they still lacked the remaining parts of Aristotle, and while they were broadly guided by a illumine, well, you could call it an illuminationist, but the, the doctrine of divine illumination and their understanding that we, uh, we believe in order to understand, which could take them in unsavory direction because they would start to try to think that the Trinity and the incarnation could be proved by pure reason, which led them to some pretty absurd arguments. But, um, but on the other hand, it was the idea that, uh, the, you know, the, the light of the soul is what, what illuminates the intellect and floods the, the intellect with, with light and understanding, which is a fundamentally platonic um, doctrine. If you look, for example, at Plato's seventh letter, the very famous, beautiful passage there about the illumination of the intellect. Um, and uh, and it's it's a very common trope throughout Platonism. But um, it, so John Scott, Scott is there again, uh, and Anselm, and uh, you know the uh, the Saint Victors and all of those people, the the monks of Cluny, and um, throughout the whole so-called Dark Ages, which are really the full of Light Ages, um, they. Uh, it was still a, a broadly platonic ontology which was at play. Um, it really starts to change, I would say, when uh, with the conquest of Toledo in 1085, whatever it was, they find the lost portions of the Aristotelian logic, they find the parts on scientific demonstration, and they find um, Ibn Sina's works, and they find all sorts of things in in the conquest of Toledo, and then, you know, what were previously the cathedral schools, primarily, the, you know, Chartres and uh, and the, you know the Carolingian. I mean, you know, John Scottus Erigena was part of the Carolingian Renaissance, and you know there was Alcuin of York, and um, they're all broadly Platonist thinkers, but. Uh, you go from the cathedral schools to starting to have the formation of the universities and you have Oxford and Bologna, I think is first, which is mostly uh, a law school. And then you have Oxford um, and then you have uh, Paris, well, Paris is first for Oxford, I think. Um, and that was much more important than Oxford actually. Um, but Oxford was also important. Then eventually you have little old Cambridge in 1211. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, that starts to be informed by the, uh, these newfangled notions of scientific demonstration. 
I think the first thinker to utilize that was William of Auvergne. Um, but then again, he still tries to, uh, you know, uh, to 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 um, uh, have doc. You know, he be still believes that you can prove the existence of, for example, the Trinity through natural reason. So uh, it's you know. But then finally, with Aquinas, I mean, everything really starts to go badly wrong with Aquinas, um, and uh, according to some accounts. Um, uh, he brings in a wholesale um, Avicennan understanding, imminentist understanding. Um, and he takes so much from Ibn Sina. I mean, the first person who brought my attention to these are so many other things was Sidi Cream. But I mean, when you look at uh, uh, Aquinas and some of his major works, De Veritate, for example, um, where he talks about the the convertibility of truth and being. He talks about the transcendentals in general. Um, he's just copying Ibn Sina um, the vast majority of the time, almost verbatim a lot of the time, and in, in, in so many other places. Um, but it's a very unsatisfactory kind of Platonism. There is a kind of Platonism there in, in Aquinas, and this is contrary to a kind of earlier consensus that people like Jules Sonne and earlier scholars had, had been very strict about Aquinas being Aristotelian. And this is a wonderful thing because the incarnation, you know, that's concrete, uh, concrete particular, which is also God, and therefore, you know, an imminentist ontology, which is, you know, believes that the sensible world is real, it's really much better and more realistic and stuff. But then later, scholars have realized that there's a lot of, uh, you know, what seems like Platonic participation in Aquinas, but then again, it's not participation in proximate principle of unity, which are spiritual beings which bestow intelligibility onto every single particular essence, but it's just participation in being. And he's got this very annoying um, notion of, of uh, pure being, which I think is just one of the most overrated doctrines in the history of philosophy. Um, and, you know, is this kind of universal panacea for Thomists for some reason? I don't think it even makes sense. But who am I to say that? It's just my own inclination is against it. But, you know, so when, I mean, to cut a long story short, when you get this idea that we want to be pure Aristotelians, which they did have um, uh, after a certain point in, you know, Albert the Great, Aquinas' teacher, and then Aquinas, and then, you know, it becomes really bad with Duns Scotus and and Ockham and and uh, Nicholas of Autrecourt. Not even to pretend to be able to speak French, um, and um, and various other Durandus. It gets really bad with Durandus. Durandus is like a kind of extreme radical Asherite. <laughs> wow. No, I'm not against Asheries. I'm an Asherite myself, but. But, uh, you know, it's very funny if you look at Durandus and his doctrines, extreme Asherism, <laughs> extreme nominalism, extreme voluntarism. Um, I think that there is an Ashery position. I'm not making fun of Asherism. I am literally an Ashery. Um, and, uh, and I, uh, you know, one should be an Ashery. Um, on tenets of faith, not in philosophy. And this is the 
the error that people make is they think that uh, Imam al-Ash'ari, whose books are beautiful to read, by the way, if you ever read a book by Imam al-Ash'ari, it's a bit like reading Augustine. It's really enjoyable. It's all scripture and reason, and it's very, very nice. Um, uh, it's not, it's nice, uh, but it's not a, you know, it's not primarily philosophical. Where he starts doing philosophy, it's not so good. Um, you know, like Imam al-Ghazali says in, in Faisal al-Tafriqa, you know, people treat uh, Imam al-Ashri like a prophet. Why? He's not a prophet. It's not kufr to say you don't like Imam al-Ashri. It is kufr to say you don't like a prophet. He, he's not a prophet. Um, but he is a great, great Imam in tenets of faith. Why? Because he showed the Mu'tazila that they were not being Quranically faithful, that there was more in the, the wealth of the revelation there than their, you know, Hashem, I have the greatest respect for them, but their paltry minds, our paltry minds could enforce, could impose upon it. So they can't say, you know, well, yes, the Quran says you're going to see Allah in the Akhirah, but you can't because he can't because... The Aqal says no. You know, <laughs> it's uh, it's not allowed to say that. If he says so, then he's Rabbil Alameen. We have to expand our minds. Um, and so they're wrong on that count. They're wrong on when it comes to Khalq al-Qur'an because, again, you know, a, a similar argument, really. Um, it's, it's the same with Khalq al-Af'al. Um, the imposing these kind of necessities on God, imposing these supposed impossibilities, um, and, you know, wujub al-aslah and all of that kind of thing. So that's where Imam al-Ashri, that's where we're Ash'aris, and he should be followed because he was more Quranically faithful, and we should be forever grateful to him for that. But it's not a philosophy. So, you know, the problem with neo-Ashrism is that is a trying to make it into a philosophy yes he was an atomist but we don't have to be atomists yes he believed in all sorts of different doctrines which no reasonable person would agree with philosophical doctrines but that's fine because they're not items which affect creed and we don't have to be outrageously you know rude and audacious modern people to say well that's obviously ridiculous because his own school said that. Go and look at Sharh al-Mawaqif and Sharh al-Maqasid. They're always disagreeing with Imam al-Ashari. They don't think he's a prophet. Uh, they're always disagreeing with Imam al-Ashari. Almost any opportunity uh, when it comes to philosophical doctrines which don't impinge on creed. And even in creed, you can be a Maturidi. You can have different perspectives. Uh, there are even, I mean, of course, you know, the whole Maturidi, I'm a Maturidi thing. I mean, you know, all of this label wearing and flag bearing and badge wearing and stuff, um, it's not correct. Uh, it's not the way that things were done in the tradition, as you know, Sidi. Um, we don't know to this day whether Teftazani was a Maturidi or, or Ashri because he never said so. No, no, people weren't going around waving their flag. You know, I'm a Maturidi. I'm going to, I identify as a Maturidi. Yeah, I'm a Maliki, you know. 
Um, so I like, you know, ethnic carpets and I have this whole aesthetic universe that I live in as a Maliki. Um, and, you know, I like the Moroccan aesthetic. And, uh, and I'm also a Maturidi because, you know, I believe in free will and essences and stuff. And I'm more of a realist. Yani, it's not necessary. So no one, no one traditionally thought about that. It's not befitting of, of Ahl Tahqiq. You know, we don't need to fit into one, one or another of those rubrics, but there is a broad permissibility. There's a, you know, there's a broad domain of what is possible. And we can, you know, the best way to fit into that, because Aqid is not the realm of Taqlid, is to do our own Taqlid. Uh, you know, if we have the Ahliya or, 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 or trying to acquire the Ahliya, or we know people who have the Ahliya, like you know, my sheikh, your sheikh, those kinds of people, then um, <clears throat> then that's the best way to go. Anyway, uh, Sidi um, Satri, did, were you going to say something or did you uh, no, withdraw? Yeah, I had a question. Uh, no, I had a question, but then uh, for the time is running, so I don't want to delay you guys. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry, I've gone over the time without noticing anyway. Um, <clears throat> Sorry about uh, that. If there's anyone who wants to, because people are free to leave at any time. I mean, um, and this is recorded. Um, I don't flatter myself that anyone actually goes and watches this video, by the way. But um, but just in case by some miracle, people actually do spend their time doing that, then it would be there uh, if you wanted to um, watch it or something while you were doing the washing up or something. That's the only thing I can imagine. I can't imagine someone actually, I, I, you do I, it when I, you're well, doing the washing up. Cycling, yeah. <laughs> that's not a good idea. <laughs> You'd literally watch this with your cycling. <laughs> oh, you listen to it, yeah. So go ahead, uh, Sidi Satri, if you'd yeah. like to. Yeah, it was just to uh, ask you about the notion of motion again, right? For the, for the forms, you said they have- Oh, a, don't a ask me about that because I don't know anything about it. Why don't, <laughs> why don't you tell us? Yeah. No, I, I, I'm just trying to understand what motion means. So usually, I didn't you know, know. When, when we're talking about motion, there's a kind of change, right? Uh, from yeah. something to something, right? Uh, so th that which can change is that which can be other than what it is right mm. now, you know, whether yeah. you want to think of it temporarily or some other way. Mm. Um, but the forms are not like that somehow. They're I mean, unchanging, yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to think how to, how to square the... Quite yeah, there's very here. little even in Plotinus about it. It's just kind of taken as a fact. I mean, motion there is identified with life. Um, and I think it means, you know, I mean, if we think of ourselves, we are in motion, even if we're not in motion. Our souls are, have the possibility of moving things, um, moving our body, moving our mind. And I think the idea that the the forms, the, the, the world of forms is actively knowing itself, means there's a kind of activity and affection happening, which is, I think, a kind of motion. At the same time, there's also the fact that the forms are not causally inert. Um, so it's very difficult, different to the modern, incredibly dogmatic uh, understanding of abstract objects. Um, which is that they have to be causally inert and they don't exist in time and space, the standard list. But, but the forms are causally active. So again, they need to possess life. 
you know, life in the Islamic tradition, I think it would be helpful is al-musahih lil-idraq. So I think that's very helpful, actually, because, uh, you know, life is al-musahih lil-idraq, is the thing which makes idraq possible. You can't have idraq unless there's already life there, right? So however you define life, uh, that is an important question, and I can't say that I know how is Zoe defined I don't know. I'd have to go and look it into it. I mean, this is some. I have to confess that, uh, you know, I partially, it was partially for selfish reasons that I focused on this office because it's something I could never get around to in the research for my PhD. And, um, and uh, it's just a necessary component of the background. So I thank you for everyone for bearing with me for my uh, selfish, self-serving um, thing. But uh, Yanni, uh, it's one of those open questions. What exactly does he mean by motion when it comes to an unchanging realm? Um, it's something I really want to look into. I find it absolutely intriguing. I mean, if anyone else present has an idea uh, beyond what we've said, then I'd love to hear it. But it's something that, that I need to look into more. But, but that's what I'd suggest, basically, is that, you know, I mean, I'd say in a broader philosophical context where we don't have to think about whether we're doing good exegesis or not but are we doing good philosophy yes i mean if there's idraq which we know the forms have of themselves then there has to be al-musahih that's life and, and we we do know that the platonists when they talk about the motion of the soul of the forms they mean the life of the forms um and there are things which would indicate that it is exactly that self-knowledge which is is the motion, it's the action and the affection, which presupposes life. And it and it's also a form of motion. And then it's the 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 uh, power to uh, cause the world of becoming. Yeah, I'm just wondering as well uh, if, it, if somehow you know the whole uh Nafas al Rahman idea that mm. God, God is unchanging in some sense, but yet you know, quote unquote, he creates. Uh, he breathes, you know, etc. Uh, yeah, under him, bring that in as well because it's it, there's a it's a related issue kind of thing, right? Oh, very much, very very much. Yeah, um, I think you know one has to visualize the idea of w what is the unchanging form of change, and in a way, in al wujud al almi, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala can encompass the reality of the essence of change and motion, but it doesn't mean that he's in change. But yes, it's a, it's a very fascinating thing that we should look into more because I don't really have much more to say about it. I don't know if you have anything, Molana Cream or... If you, if he's even no, actually, just, just what you said, I mean, he doesn't change, neither does his knowledge, obviously, so mm. regardless. Mm. If no one has anything else, I think we'll call it a day. But thank you very, very much, everyone, for attending, for bearing with me, and also um, for uh, uh, bearing with me because we were we were so late.
And uh, inshallah, next time we will move on just with the uh, the text of the Nafs al-Amr paper. I think we'll have one session and then we'll get on to Kant. Um, and then we'll have uh, a session which Sidi Satri is going to give on the 31st of October, which is going to be extremely interesting. Sidi Satri has been a student of... Um, uh, a student of uh, uh, Sadruddin al-Dili. He's not really called Sadruddin, but uh, for some reason I want to say al-Dili, but he's not al-Dili, he's Dili. He's, he's a, um, a philosopher in the Thomas tradition who is very, very interesting, um, seems to have found a, a side of, uh, of the Thomas tradition which is very close to... to all of the things that we like and um and i think has a lot of very illuminating things to teach us um and so we're very grateful that he's going to be providing exposition of that philosophy on the 31st um and i am please watch out everyone i am going to be approaching many of you who i know that some of you i don't know um but and i hope to meet you in the future but uh uh, I will be approaching some of you, asking you to to present um, uh, John Dealey, yes, um, uh, at some point, because so many of you have uh, wonderful things to teach us. Um, but uh, so that's on the 31st, and then we'll continue with Kant. Kant's going to take up quite a lot of our time. Um, uh, if anyone has been able to read the paper I sent, uh, I think it may be of help. Uh, I'd also be interested to uh, get uh, your feedback. Um, yes, John of St. Thomas. Yes, indeed. Exactly. Jazakum Allah khairan, everyone, and I hope to see you next time. Jazakum Allah khairan. Thank you so much. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaykum as-salamu wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.